Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. It is a hostful, old-fashioned Q&A show. We are going back on some of the questions that we have gotten from webinars, blogs, articles we've written, uh, just random emails we've gotten uh, about uh, some questions that have come in in 2021, and we're here in 2022 to answer. Uh, uh, hopefully, our turnaround time is a acceptable for everybody. Um, but I cannot do this by myself. I am going to need all the help I can get today. Uh, so we are joined by local food systems and small farms educator, Katie Parker in Quincy. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are you doing today? I am. I'm doing pretty good. You know, we've we've just gotten off another three-day weekend. I think I needed that extra day. Uh, it was it was nice. Uh, so, so we had MLK uh, weekend and I feel a little bit recharged today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Did you guys get to get out and play in the snow this weekend? Yes, yes. I don't like. I don't know about you and Quincy. I've uh, here we got oh maybe five, six inches possibly. Um, I know down in Quincy you got a lot more freezing rain at first. Like ours just started out right out snow. Yeah, uh, I think Quincy got quite a bit of snow as well. I'd say they got close to five or six inches. Mm -hmm. At our house in Ursa, I don't think we got quite as much, but it's still plenty, plenty to play with. Oh yes, fun outside. The the wind, I wind is both good and bad when it comes to snow. I think we know that. The good part are the drifts that develop not in the driveway or in the roads, but in the yard. And then my kids have now dug a series of tunnels in this like foot and a half tall drift that has built up between the our and the neighbor's house and so they have I can't keep them like inside they want to be outside oh yeah this was definitely some good igloo building snow so as a kid I would have loved it definitely and someone who I know is out there just building igloos left and right is horticulture educator Ken Johnson in Jacksonville hey Ken hello Chris and Katie no, no igloos but we did play outside quite a bit some snowball fights snow angels all that fun stuff. Oh, yes. Did you wear your shorts and t-shirt to be outside in the snow? <laughs> I did wear shoots. Or shirt. Yeah, I did wear shorts. I had my snow boots on, so only like my knees were showing. But <laughs> And I had my winter jacket on. <laughs> I was outside this weekend, and we made a campfire for the kids and everything. And I have to, I have to tell this uh, story. So before our holiday break, we had our gifts for gardeners little uh, mini show here that we did. I said, uh, you know, I, I, I would just love to get some insulated leather gloves. And it also just so happens to be my birthday over the holiday break. So a friend of mine who listens to the show heard that and gave me some insulated leather gloves. So uh, shout out to Tim walking his dog right now. Uh, thank you. And I've been wearing them nonstop ever since you've, you've given them to me. I even wear them to bed. So it's, yes, I keep my hands nice and warm. It sounds like we need to drop other subtle hints to some of our listeners. Exactly. <laughs> New chipper <laughs> shredder. <laughs> We've been saying that one for years. Aerator. <laughs> <laughs> now, being state employees, we have to make in-kind donations to uh, charities so of our choice. So just going on record here, just to let you know, I, I will do that. So uh, thank you very much, though. Um, so <laughs> got to follow all of our ethics training that we do receive here. Well, 
Ken, Katie, I, we've we've had a with extension a major part of our job when it comes to agriculture, horticulture, working outside. Everything that that we deal with there is questions. We get lots of questions, and so we're going to share uh, just a, a tiny fraction of those questions that we we get within that span of time. So, Katie, would you mind kicking us off this week on our first question? Yeah. So. Um... We had hosted a webinar uh, the beginning of 20, was that 2021? Um, and it was about feeding our birds and how we can attract birds to our yards. And in the webinar, you had said sunflower seed is a good bird seed for a lot of different species. So this person switched straight to sunflower seeds and now they have sparrows, a couple of juncos and some morning doves. But the cardinals, blue jays, and finches are gone, which um, a lot of our bird watchers enjoy those. You also mentioned that burning bush can be a lousy shrub, but the sparrows <laughs> love it and depend on it for cover. So did you tell us all some wrong information, Chris? Um, I would say, I, I don't think so. Um, we'll start with with the bird seed here real quick. So. Um, we have a local Audubon chapter here in my neck of the woods um, and just like a real quick chat with some of them. And, you know, they're talking about what they feed and what they're seeing at their feeders at this time of year. And I, it seemed like a lot of them, again, once again, primary food is like suet and sunflower seed. Um, sometimes they, they might mix a, a little bit of other seed in there, but for the most part, that's like the staple diet for whatever they set out. And there's a little bit of odds and ends here and there. Um, they're all seeing plenty of cardinals and things like that. So I did a little bit more uh, reading online. I went to Cornell um, where, you know, they're kind of known for their resources on wild birds and, and, you know, whether it's maintaining wild bird populations or attracting their backyard, whatever. Um, I did more reading and everyone is recommending sunflower seeds for cardinals and, you know, all these other birds. Um, I, I will say there's a few things that might be drawing birds and might be pulling them from one yard to the other. Um, one of our pin oaks in our backyard had a mast year. Mast means it was just a year it produced a lot of acorns. You know, now, a lot of times they drop acorns on the ground, but there are so many acorns. I mean, they're up in the canopy still. They're dropping right now. The blue jays have just been going nuts over these acorns. They, we see them pull them off the tree. They're up on the branches. We see them try to peck them open and pry them open. And then all of the juncos, and then there's even cardinals. There's all kinds of other birds then on the ground picking up all the pieces. And, you know, again, that's just the natural bird food that's out there. And so maybe there is some other resource nearby that they're utilizing more frequently and, and is meeting their needs. Um, so again, for the most part, as far as I can tell, sunflower seed is the, you know, from a general standpoint, general bird population attracting their backyard. That's the one that's recommended most often. Um, that's the one that I've used in my backyard. And I also put suet out you know, routinely. So um, I have not noticed, noticed a change in or fewer cardinals or anything. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why they aren't seeing as many cardinals this year. I'll say in my yard, we we had some birds visiting the bird feeders, but we really didn't have a lot until we got the snow. I think that's a lot of the food sources got covered up and they started coming to the feeders a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the the um, Blue Jays and the Pin Oaks because we had three in our Pin Oak this weekend. Um, and like you said, Ken, like it had just snowed and Sunday morning, our birds were just going crazy over our feeders. Uh, our producer, Wendy, just threw it in the chat box. She said they did uh, an experiment uh, in our undergrad program and they said sunflower they saw that sunflower seeds were the most popular at the feeders followed by safflower seeds. So thank you, Wendy, yes. Um, now, as far as the burning bush goes, um, boy, uh, plant snob, I don't know if, you, if, if that's a thing, um, but that probably would describe a lot of my feelings towards some plants out there. A burning bush is, it is a fantastic ornamental shrub. Um, it does what it says it's going to do. It gives you red fall color, but that's it. I mean, it, that's all it does. The other things that it does is that it invades natural woodland areas, at least here where I'm located in central Illinois, I can see burning bush seedlings popping up in the woods behind me. Uh, so it is in becoming a, um, a species of concern here in Illinois. It has not been deemed yet a legally invasive species, but I think that's coming down the pipeline for it. Uh, and so just kind of for that is why I might have been a little bit harsh on burning bush, but any densely twig shrub, you know, could be a lilac, it could be viburnum, uh, it could be uh, any manner of shrubs like dogwood. That is great cover for birds, um, especially in winter. It makes it harder for predators to follow them through those dense twig areas. It's just, uh, it, it's where you will find them for the most part. So if you can hang your feeders nearby, you're probably going to see more activity in those locations. And so I'm sorry I was hard on burning bush. It can become an invasive species. So maybe don't cut it down this year, but plant something else that might not escape uh, into the natural areas. And then once that's established, you can cut down the burning bush and burn it as you should be. All right, well, this next question here uh, came in, I think it was from a email question. Is that right, Ken? Uh, yes. yes. So they were asking, I wonder, I was wondering if you could help me. I have a problem with pantry moths. I had an infestation in a closet from some bird seed. However, I did not remove the source until last week. I still see an occasional moth in several different rooms that are, that's not by the kitchen. Uh, will the eggs from these moths become moths? Uh, if, even if they don't have any like flour or sugar source that is nearby for their, their larvae to develop. Uh, thinking logically, they should hatch and die within a day or two. And now that the humidity is low, is that going to take less time? Am I crazy? That's in the question. That's not me. Well, I, you know what I mean. Am I crazy? Is it likely that they will find another source of food other than what's in the pantry? Yeah, so the reason they're probably seeing them away from that closet is those moths are going to be attracted to light. So they're going to go to windows or any other lights that may be on. You know, they will lay eggs, um, but if those eggs hatch and they have nothing to feed on, those caterpillars aren't going to develop um, really after that first instar. However, they feed on a wide variety of, of stored products, so bird food, um, they get into dog food, um, spices, herbs, all, if you've got like um, ornamental corn that you save, decorate with, they can get into that. So they feed on a wide variety of things. So there's always a chance that they're going to find something um, they're going to feed on. So making sure your all of that stuff is in sealed containers so they can't access it. Um, 
you know, doing a good job of cleaning up that closet and vacuuming, make sure there's no eggs or caterpillars um, on the floor or anything like that. And then disposing of that bag or emptying that bag outdoors. Don't empty it in your garbage can where they can potentially get out of there. Um, so, yeah, so they're not, they're not crazy. Um, so if they, if they find another source, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll multiply, but if they can clean everything up and keep everything well sealed and, and stored away, they should be successful getting rid of them. So Ken, I have a question. Um, I once had to deal with pantry moths at my mother-in-law's home. Maybe this is a different species altogether, but they seem to be going after paper towels. Is there a reason why they would be consuming paper towels as like a source for cellulose or something? I, again, this might've been a whole different type of different species. I, I don't know if they're pantry moths or not. Yeah, I'm not sure. So the one we commonly see is the Indian meal moth. So they're mm -hmm. kind of copper and um, striped and stuff. Um, I haven't read about them feeding on paper towels. It doesn't mean they don't. So, I mean, that could have just been something they could feed on and, and kind of get themselves along. Probably not their preferred food source, but. Yeah, it could have been just out of desperation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So can like um, the paper around a tin can or aluminum can, can that act as a food source? you think? I don't know. A lot of it's glossy. I don't know. The paper towel is, it's got that rougher texture. Because you know, a lot of times when they're in containers, they'll, they'll chew their way out of there. Mm -hmm. and lot, especially with the beetles and stuff to kind of pupate and, and spread that way. That's why you see the holes in those a lot of times because they're escaping that container. Mm -hmm. They That's why you want to use um, like the plastic or, or metal containers instead of cardboard or something like that. Interesting. And, and maybe what happened in this case with my mother-in-law, they were there in the factory um, because what we would find when we would unroll it, we would find moths in there and we would find the, like a little hollow, like a little hole, like a little hollowed out area of the paper towel, or I think the larva had been eating the paper towel and then they go in their cocoon. Is that the correct term? Cocoon or it pupates? Yeah, that's when a cocoon. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess they come out as the moth, but it, it was more than likely it occurred in the place where the paper towel was created. That's what it at least appeared to be. Or it got stored somewhere for a while and it was near mm -hmm. a contaminated food source and they got into it. Yes. pupated in there. Mm -hmm. All right. So next question is on mice. So I'm writing to you all because <clears throat> I saw you had written a piece on how to get rid of mice. Here's my question. I see lots of sites suggesting that one good method is instant potato flakes. The mice eat them, get extra thirsty, and bloat themselves to death. I've done a lot of research, but I can't find a really reliable source, either validating or debunking this method. Can you shed any light on it? Sounds like an awful way to go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so uh, we have been looking into this question, uh, trying to reach out to a couple other uh, more veterinary inclined folks that study that field haven't heard back from them, but searching online, uh, looking at Google Scholar, and then diving into the University of Illinois Library, all their article archives and everything, publications, periodicals, found no research-based article on this topic to prove or disprove if it works or not. And I think, I think with a lot of questions that we get. Katie and Ken, like, there's sometimes there's just not an answer, right? 
like it, we just don't know. So yeah, if you want to, if you want a research-based answer, there's yeah, a lot of times there's something, maybe some anecdotal, but mm-hmm. no, nothing hard. And I'm sure people would be willing to accept funding uh, to do that research-based information and provide that to folks. Um, but but for the most part, I know I we can't necessarily recommend using potato flakes because one, it's a food, it's not a pesticide, it's not labeled for killing mice, um, and it just sounds awful. I we used to when we rented our landlord, they would put the poison bait out. And I understand like that is a legitimate, that's a legitimate control method. I hated it because what happens when the mouse eats the, the, the bait, they go and they die in your wall cavity <laughs> and then it smells awful. Um, I would, ever since we had that series of dead mice in the walls, I switched to snap traps right away. So, um, you know, that's the one that I go for. I don't know, Katie, Ken, do you do you all have your preferred methods of mouse control? We, we usually use the, the snap tap, trap types in the house. Um, in the garage, we've had some issues. So we've just used the poison bait out there because we're not out there because it's a detached mm-hmm. garage. So we don't go out there all, all the time. And if they stink up the garage, we're not usually out there. So it's not as big of a deal. Luckily, we haven't had any issues with mice. But um, growing up, we grew up in a farmhouse in the country and so uh, we use snap traps when we were in the farmhouse so yeah i I would say go you know for the most part what we can recommend at extension are a lot of those research-based methods or the things that are labeled for controlling that pest snap traps some of those poison baits um but potato flakes uh just can't recommend it i'm sorry but it doesn't mean it doesn't work um I, I would just continue to go on record and say that sounds like an awful way to go. <laughs> I, yeah. And if it doesn't cause them to blow it up, you're just providing them with a food source. Mm-hmm. So, and they'll bring all their friends with them. Yeah. There's a party kids. at your house. Yeah. <laughs> bring the butter. They got potatoes. <laughs> so I'm a little jealous of this next person. They just bought 12 acres in Southern Illinois and they don't know where to get started. They are curious to know what extension resources we have available to new landowners. That's a great question. It depends. <laughs> it depends, right. <laughs> we need more information. That's that's the big one. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've reached out, asked them kind of what, what are your goals for this land? Uh, and that's the main thing. Like, what are your goals? Are you going to turn this into more of like an agricultural productive type landscape? Do you want animals, livestock? Uh, do you want to um, rehabilitate, reconstruct, uh, however you want to put it, like native ecosystems? Uh, or are you going to parcel this all off and sell it off to a developer? We don't know. So it depends on your goals, really. And um, I, I'd say for the most part, um, in Southern Illinois, this is an assumption, but uh, there's probably a wooded part or all of it is wooded. Um, we do have the Illinois Extension Forestry webpage that has a ton of fantastic resources on there um, for new landowners, uh, whether it is getting started with the forest management plan, valuing your forest, working with the district forester, um, and then dealing with things like invasive species and so on. And so I, I will point folks in, in that direction. We'll leave a link below in the description. And I would say if you want to get into more production type fruits and vegetables, um, this time of year, there's a lot of conferences going on 
Um, so attend those if there's something specific you want to grow. If you're wanting to do tree fruit, um, we've got tree fruit school, fruit and vegetable school in Southern Illinois. Uh, attend some of those so you kind of get an idea of some of the, the what you can grow and some of the challenges you're going to face trying to grow some of these different things if you want to go that production route. And I know too, a big thing with getting started in um, in owning land and starting new crops or starting to grow new things, um, the USDA has some great services that they can provide as well. And so if you contact your local extension person, they can put you in contact with the USDA office. If it's uh, highly erodible ground or if it's like Chris had said, you want to uh, restore it back to its natural habitat. They do have programs too, uh, potential cost share programs as well as um, like conservation reserve programs where you can put the ground into a contract and uh, get paid for that. And so there's all kinds of different options uh, based off of what your goals are. Yep. So feel free, reach back out, give us some more information, contact your local extension office and check out these resources that we will share below in the, the description. All right. Our next question uh, once again comes from uh, the emails. Uh, is, uh, they write that you wrote, I think you is Ken, right? Uh, you wrote an article on Norfolk Island pine tree. I had one of these trees many years ago and despite my very ungreen thumb, kept it alive for a good while. I have searched and searched for this type of tree, but everything I find in stores, nurseries, and labeled online uh, for Norfolk pine or Norfolk island pine is more of a bush with multiple branches sprouting from the base, not a single trunk with branches spiraling from the, I guess, from the top, probably from the bottom up to the top. Um, do you know of any source that I could order the type of Norfolk Island pine I am looking for. I have thought the problem with local purchase could be the area where I live, but I cannot find an online store that I'm sure offered the product that I want. Well, Ken, why can you only buy Norfolk Island shrubs and not trees? I think one of the issues I think a lot of times is you're getting multiple plants in one pot because the, the small trees, kind of seedlings themselves are kind of spindly looking. Um, so they, a lot of times they'll plant multiple trees in there. So you get a bit of a fuller appearance, unless you're getting a real large tree, then those are going to be rather expensive. And you don't really see those necessarily all that often. You're probably getting multiple plants uh, in one pot. So if you wanted one, uh, I think this person wanted to use it as a Christmas tree. Um, I don't know if it was this year or in subsequent years. So they you know, they get that pot. They could either separate all those trees out or pick one and just cut all the rest of them to the ground and just leave that one there. If you're going to, if you're going to do that and you're going to try to separate them all, there's a good chance those roots are going to be intertwined. So you'll probably want to take some time and, and be careful about separating all those. You want to damage too many of the roots uh, from those. Maybe you would do some root washing um, and try to untangle some of that before you repot them. So you go from having one Christmas tree to like 10. And a whole grove. <laughs> of them. You have one for every room in your house. There you go. <laughs> Need to buy more Christmas lights. <laughs> I, another forewarning on those uh, those Norfolk Island pine trees is so often the um, retailer just douses them in glitter, <laughs> or paints them green, <laughs> or paints them green. They could be brown and dead, but they spray paint them green. So just uh, before you go through the work of dividing them up, just make sure that the, they're 
not painted green. And if they are, and they're still alive, try to get as much of that paint off as you can, because there's not going to be a whole lot of any photosynthesis going on there. And your trees are going to decline rather quickly. All right, so our next question, um, when's the best time to trim trees? I don't know, Katie, isn't it any time the saw is sharp? Isn't that the adage that we live by? <laughs> Uh, if you want to kill your tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, any time now is probably a pretty decent time to start trimming trees. Typically, they suggest like February to March. Um, but this this period where trees are dormant is a good option of trimming trees. But there are some trees that we um, that we don't want to trim at this point. And right now, uh, those trees fail to come to mind. Any um, spring bloomers, anything like a magnolia, you know, Correct. don't, I mean, you could, yeah, some of these recommendations, like, you know, we always, I, well, I always say, like, don't seed your lawn in the spring. I don't really mean don't do it, just like, it's not as successful uh, when it comes to germination rates. It doesn't hurt your lawn, just like necessarily pruning your magnolia now is not going to hurt your magnolia, you're just pruning off flowers, because those flower buds for this spring were set last fall. Or, or late summer so you know some of your spring blooming trees hold off or, or you don't have to i mean if it's a branch in the way go ahead and lop it off it, it'll be fine um uh, the one thing that i just i tell folks is that if at all possible right now get those oaks pruned because we don't necessarily want to be pruning those in the summer months and why is that there's this nasty thing called oak wilt that when you leave a big old wound uh, when you're pruning your oaks, uh, it can attract things like bark beetles. Is that right, Ken? Is it a bark beetle? <laughs> Some sap feeding that, insect. Yeah, I think there's a sap beetle. Yeah, sap beetle. I should have looked that up before the show. No, no, we're we're seated up our pants here. You, the listeners, you don't know how many curse words we've already cut out of this show. Um, so the the sap beetle, it it feeds on say an infected oak tree that has oak wilt. You prune your tree, leave a nice open wound tissue. It's like, hey, this is going to be great. It's I don't have to do any work here. It's it's exposed for me to eat. And they go and they feed and they transmit that disease from the infected oak to your oak tree. So if you can do it in the winter, chances are your tree will be able to seal off that open wound before those beetles are around in the summer months. What well, else? If you you send, and if you have damaged branches, you can prune those anytime. Even if it's an oak, if it's yep. posing a hazard, prune that. Yes. Yes. I love to prune in the winter. Um, uh, many times I have gone outside with the pruning saw in my hand and gone right back inside because it's so cold. So I uh, wait till February, I'd say. Get, let it get a little warmer. So a continuation of tree issues or trimming trees. So this fall, we saw some issues with trees and early leaf drop. And then we also saw some issues with nutrient deficiency. Is there anything that we should be doing now to prevent that from, or preventing, to prevent us from having any issues this coming growing season? I've just been going out talking to my trees, seeing how they're doing. Uh, no. Give them I, I, some CO2. The, yes. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> so come on, guys, this is for you. I, I don't, Katie, what kind of uh, symptoms do you think we were looking at? I mean, I definitely saw drought stress. We got pretty dry there late summer, early fall. 
Um, saw a lot of early leaf drop because of that. Um, what about yourself? Um, we saw some like zinc and manganese deficiencies in uh, red maples. Um, but I think maybe it was mostly due to soil pH. So now would be a good time to, if you needed to adjust your soil pH so that way, um, zinc and manganese are more available at lower pHs. So if you needed to make any modifications to that, you could do so now. <laughs> yeah. I, one of the things that a lot of folks and soil tests are a fantastic thing to do. I think another really neat test to do if you want to spend the extra money is a foliar tissue test. Am I the only one who gets super excited about these things? I'm <laughs> like, wow, you can see what's going on inside the plant. This is so cool. Um, yeah, like, I, I don't know, Katie, did, were some of those results, that you, were those from tissue tests or was that from like a soil test? It was from a soil test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know a lot of soil labs, well, not a lot, call first ahead of time before you start taking leaves off your trees. Um, a lot of times they will accept the leaf samples to do the tissue testing. Uh, it's, it's more money than a soil test, but I just think it's really interesting. And, and it's more of just a, I like to find, I like to like investigate this kind of stuff. All right, well, other than, you know, maybe looking at modifying pH, talking to your trees, giving them a hug, um, you know, I, just keeping an eye on them. As we talked about with trimming your trees, get rid of that dead wood out of there, anything that's diseased. Um, and hey, it, we're, I know our tree trimmers, they're still at work. Um, there's still big piles of mulch at the landscape companies and stuff around town. So uh, if things aren't frozen, you know, you could potentially do yard work right now if you're into that kind of thing in sub-freezing weather, um, which I am because I have my leather gloves. So uh, yeah, you always consider putting a, some mulch around your tree, nice wide ring, never touching the trunk. Well, that was a lot of great information. I'm going to take my yellow leather gloves and hit the hit the trail here. Um, Katie, Ken, thanks so much for being here today, um, doing another hostful episode. Good seeing you guys. Yeah, definitely. It's always pleasant to see you guys. Yes, thank you. It's good seeing you both as well. Let's do this again next week. Oh, we will do this again next week. I might be hiding a little bit. We're going to be talking to our boss, uh, new boss, Dr. Travis Burke. Uh, so he oversees Ken, Katie, and myself, and lots of other people around the state. And so, uh, but Dr. Burke, he started in extension in North Carolina, uh, looking at livestock and 4-H. And now he is head of the uh, agriculture and agribusiness team here at extension. And I'm sure that means a lot to you, but we're going to get into Dr. Burke, his background, what it's like being a leader in agriculture and lots and lots more to talk about with uh, Travis. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening, or if you're watching us on YouTube or watching, and as always, I keep on growing.